Welcome to DLC Live, your source for educational and inspirational interviews with mental health experts and advocates from around the world. Now, here's your host, creator of the DLC Anxiety Worldwide Mental Health Community, Dean Stott. Let's go, Drew. What a day. What a day. <laughs> what up, brother? Nice to see you again. Yeah, number one in new releases. I can't believe it. You've done it. I knew it was going to happen. And yeah, I'm just I'm just so proud and, and so happy. Um, it, it's the third book uh, in the in the series, yeah? It's the third book in the series. It was actually, there should have been a book before this one, to tell you the truth. So when I first started writing, I thought I would write three books, like what it was my what was my experience having an anxiety disorder and depression, how what was the recovery thing, and then what was like like life after. That's what I thought the three books would be. The first two followed that, and then this one sort of slid in. So there's a there's another book coming. But... Yeah, I just want to before we, there's so many questions, and obviously the really important questions because they're regarding the book from the followers who were really excited. By the way. You've given me so many more DMs, you know, regarding when's the paperback <laughs> going to come out. Um, and yeah, but, but it's all good. It's all good because we're here to, to help. And, and that's, the, that's the whole reason behind it. But sure. I just want to talk um, about the book, um, where you got the idea from, why you chose a little bit different method to your last one, which was almost like an Anxiety Bible 101. It was a huge textbook, wasn't it? And yeah. um, yes, just the reasoning behind this 7% uh, slower. Um, well, 7% slower is a little mental thing that I used to use way back when, when I was doing my recovery work. Like everybody else, I would like really get crazy and rush around and rush around and speed up. And I knew I was doing that. And I knew that it wasn't making things better for me. So when I, like I'd be in the supermarket, for instance, and beginning to panic, and I would just get into that, like, I got to get out of here as fast as possible. I would be running through the supermarket, trying to finish, run through the checkout. And I knew that was bad. But I would forget to slow down. And, you know, I'd have to literally remind myself, slow down, slow down, slow down. And I don't know why it's, I, I kind of came to the conclusion, like, I don't have to slow down to a stop. I just have to go a little slower. And then 7% seems absurd to me. It's, it was mm -hmm. ridiculous. It was supposed to be funny. And it was easy to remember. So I, I started reminding myself, seven, slow down 7%, which you can't do. It was just a good reminder to slow down. And that little mental trick really helped me. Like I wrote, I wrote about that in the book where it came from and, and I used it a lot. And then I just sort of forgot about it. And then as my community here grew over time, it sort of surfaced again. And I started talking about it to people and they almost universally loved the idea. And so this, you know, a couple of months ago, I said, well, it was 14 weeks ago, according to my Instagram stories that I had the idea that like, hey, this should be a book. And there you go. So that, yeah. that's, the, that's the origins of it. It's a thing that I used during my recovery. It was just a little mental trick that I came up with. Fantastic. So, so why well, you say you just chose 7% out of the blue because it, were, it was just a number there to, to remember and it stuck in the head. Uh, and so when, when you knew that, um, as we all do with anxiety, distract, we try and distract ourselves, we try and do too much. But why like you say you had this mental image saying, no, hey, you need to slow down, yeah? Yeah, I had to slow down and slowing down. I don't know why then. I honestly don't know why it clicked for me. But 7%. I like absurd, ridiculous things. They I don't know. That's where I, I travel and 7% slower just seems so ridiculous to me. And I would just say slow down by 7%. And that's I remembered that. Fantastic. And regarding the length of the book, you've chose to go a little bit shorter this time. Is that is that like with uh, an anxious mind um, to heart knowing that obviously with a lot of people, 
um, sometimes the concentration of a big long book. Um, well, it, it can lapse sometimes, but with this, uh, it's almost like a workbook, isn't it? That someone can put practical tips together to help them on the road to recovery. Yeah, this was unlike the anxious truth, which yes, turned out to be like very textbook ish. It's, mm. you know, it's big, it's heavy, it's 400 pages. So uh, in this, it's such a, it's a small, it's a narrower topic. It's one particular part of like the recovery toolkit. So I didn't, number one, I didn't have to write that much about it. Mm. And number two, yeah, a lot of the feedback and, and I'm eternally grateful for the support that the anxious truth has gotten. It's, it's done very well in the year and a half that it's been out and seemingly helped a lot of people, but it is a, a, a long read. There's a lot of information to that. And so I knew like, yeah, let me just try something lighter. And I really just wanted to write something lighter, friendlier, funnier, just easier to get through. And this one you'll get through in like, most people read it between an hour, 45, two and a half hours, read the whole thing. So it's pretty accessible. I, to, to me, I feel like this one is, it's like if you're going through an anxiety disorder, it's going to help you with, with the slowing down aspects. And just a, just a reminder, because we, we often forget to remind ourselves, don't we? Whereas with the other one, it was almost like, it's like a scholarship book. I could imagine, I could imagine them um, like giving it out in universities for people to, to, to learn on anxiety because of the, just the, the meat and gravy in it. Yeah, the first one, the anxious truth I really set out to like take somebody from, I have no idea what's going on with me and I think I'm sick and I'm broken, I'm never gonna get better, through like, no, you're not broken, this is what's wrong, this is how you fix it, this is how to make a plan, this is how to execute it. So I really wanted to walk people through that, you know? And so it, it, by necessity, it was very detailed and just a lot of information in it. And one of the things I'm pretty proud of is, I know that it's actually being used by many therapists here in the United States, because I get the messages, like they ask, is it okay for me to, to give your book to my clients? I'm like, absolutely. So yeah, I, I accidentally seem to have written something that works that way. So, but this one is so different. It's just a much lighter and easier read. So, and I wanted it to be fun to read. And I think yeah. it is. That yeah. must be a great moment as well. Like you say, when you get therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists who, who come and they, they're saying how, how amazing your work is and too right so they should drew because obviously everything that you write everything that you say really hits home and I, I know a lot of people um can relate with that um there's so many questions so i think we need to dive in them just because i don't want to i don't want to miss any out yeah um, sure. I, so i did ask you drew i, I do want to tell the followers i did ask you if you wanted to hear the questions beforehand <laughs> and nah, you, you didn't yeah, need. Okay. You didn't need to. Um, a lot of, some people do decide to. So yeah. Um, so the advice about slowing down when you have little kids to take care of. So it's a parent who's saying, "Yeah, it sounds um, all well and good, um, but how do I slow down when I've got children running around?" I think that's a good question. So when I was doing this work, my kids were little too. And I used to have to take care of my kids. And it used to terrify me to have to take care of the kids, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. I think the kids are maybe a little bit high energy at any given moment. That's going to happen with little kids. That's okay. But going slower doesn't necessarily mean you get less done. It means you just bring your energy level down and you stay more focused on the thing you are doing at the moment. So I, it doesn't mean that a, a parent of little kids has to just lay on the sofa and meditate while the kids are running amok. It just means that you don't have to amp up your energy level by trying to like cook their breakfast as fast as possible. 
that's just not required. And I had to do that with my kids too. The little kids are, you know, they get, they, they bounce off the wall sometimes. You know, my kids were playing and running around and they still got to do that. I was just able to bring my energy level down by slowing down so that I wasn't reacting to it that way. So when they were kind of getting into it and, and being loud and playing, they were able to enjoy that. And I was able to let them enjoy that. And by bringing myself down and slowing down myself, my thoughts, my body, it didn't trigger me into like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, when they were doing that. So I think it fits perfectly to tell you the truth. It doesn't mean you're going to get less done. It just means you're going to do the things that you do need to do a little bit more effectively and without going into freak out mode all the time. Yeah, no, I really like that. So it's like um, concentrating on the inward. Like you say, it's okay to have the children around if they're, if they're playing, if they're, if they're being a little bit cheeky, that's fine. But concentrate on yourself um, and then, yeah, everything around you it comes to place. So that's... That's really good advice. Um, the next question, Drew. Um, how do you slow down when you're in the middle of a panic attack and you have intense symptoms like you can't breathe? You, this is one of those, it's like, how do you get through a panic attack, right? It's that question. Like, mm. it's so scary that I, I feel like I must obey my brain, which is screaming at me to escape and save myself and do all those things. And I think we have to acknowledge, like, it's not easy to slow down in the middle of a panic attack, but that is exactly when you have to slow down. Like, and understand that, that, that desire to speed up and get the hell out of there, get out of Dodge and get yourself back to, like, your safe place or, or escape from the discomfort. That's your brain trying to keep you safe, and it's just doing its, what it thinks is its job. But in the end, how do you do it is it just becomes sometimes it's a question of courage. I will admit that that's part of the equation. In the middle of a panic attack, when you want to run, to stay put and actually slow down is part of that sort of willful tolerance, acceptance and surrender thing we talk about all the time. So yes, you're, you're allowing that panic and those sensations to come and get you while you slow down and let them do that. So it's very, very difficult because it does require a measure of courage, but it is possible. So I think sometimes that question is really like, how do you do it because it's too scary? And the answer is, yes, it is scary. You just have to be courageous and go through it. Not forever. You know, the first few times you do it requires a lot of courage, but then it, a little bit less as you go. And then you begin to learn that lesson. They're like, oh, I can do this. I can do this. And slowing down in the middle of a panic attack was huge for me. It was big. It was hard. And I stumbled a lot. It, I didn't just do it automatically, like instantaneously. I sucked at it at first. But it made a difference in the long term. So it's now, hard to do. Yeah, uh, it's very hard to do. Very hard. Because... because your body, your body's screaming at you to to run, isn't it? Like you say, um, so you're literally trying to do the opposite to to a natural response. Uh, but yeah, I agree, I agree with you. It's about the willful tolerance. It's about putting yourself in the situation and teaching the brain that it is not a dangerous situation. Uh, and uh, yeah, even if you sit, if you sit there or if you stand in the position that you're in, no, nothing. Nothing different's going to happen to than if you ran away. Yeah. Well, as we know, running away just pours, um, pours the fuel on the fire, doesn't it? It, it does. Tells, tells the brain that there's something to be worried about, to be scared about, and can increase the anxiety. Um, so, yeah, that's really important, Drew. Next think, question. I'm just going to fire, fire away with these questions. There's so many of them. Um, All right, let's do it. Speed round. Join them in a game show. <laughs> Oh, did I lose your Someone said, 
is reassurance and sometimes a comfort, is that a compulsion to, to always ask for reassurance? It's a good question, actually. Is it a compulsion? I mean, that, that's like a, that's a Kimberly and Josh question more than a Drew question. But I, I think, well, I mean, technically, I'm not going to give you like a therapist, you know, like answer mm -hmm. here. But I can give you my opinion on that, which is you of feel, course. yeah, you feel compelled to do it, of course, or compulsed to do it because you're just trying to feel better. So I get that from a purely layman's, you know, standpoint here in my own experience, like asking for reassurance is something that just about every human being wants to do because you want to know that you're okay. Even when you're not feeling okay, please tell me that this is okay. Please tell me that I'm going to be all right. Please tell me it's going to end okay. And so can it become a compulsion? Yeah, it's definitely can, can become a compulsion. It's a, it, you know, you, you, you wind up in this level of discomfort and fear and uncertainty and vulnerability, and you're going to look for something that will deflate that and bring you back down. And that is a quick hit. Boom. That's like a quick injection of, of calm if you can get it. So why wouldn't you be compulsed to do that? And in the end, like, I, I don't, you know, is it a compulsion? Sure. It's a compulsion, but it's also, uh, of course, the thousands and thousands of people that I, I have the privilege of interacting with and seeing everybody does it. So it's not a special compulsion. It's just becomes a habit for many, many, many people. Some, I think, have a harder time breaking the habit than others. But, you know, it's pretty normal. Is it a compulsion? Yeah, probably technically would be if, if Kim and Josh were here, they'd probably say, yes, it's a compulsion. But at a minimum, it's an extremely common habit. Yeah, I think what you just touched on there, Drew, I think is that's one of the one of the great things really about our communities, about the community on Instagram for mental health, uh, for anxiety, is that the the data that we see because we've got so the the groups are so large, aren't they? So like you say, you can see these patterns, you can see these trends. Um, so that's why um, your opinions really do matter. It doesn't matter if you're a therapist or if you've gone through it, someone's opinion of, of their anxiety journey of what worked for them is really important. And that's, to be honest, Drew, that's the number one thing that helped me overcome my anxiety disorder. It was someone who was a little bit older than me who'd been through an anxiety disorder. And he said, hey, listen, I know what you're going through. I got to the end and so can you. And yeah, I know that motivates a lot of our uh, communities as well. Um, the next question, Drew, is what is the best way to tackle procrastination? Never mind going 7% slower. <laughs> uh, I want to stop procrastinating, but I'll do it tomorrow. So like, I, I that's a good question. I, I wasn't expecting to be answered that. The <laughs> yeah, best way to, to practice procrastination, procrastination on an, okay, so I'll try and frame it in the framework of, of anxiety and stress, right? I know for myself when I was really suffering, I was a huge procrastinator because, but it wasn't just like a personality flaw, like I'm lazy or I'm just a procrastinator. It was, I don't really want to do that because that scares me and it's going to trigger me and I'm going to be anxious and I might panic and I'm going to hate it. I'm going to feel all those things I don't want to feel. So I would totally just like go around and back away from things that I had to do. If they were challenging, I would back up. So in the anxiety context, I don't know if I would call it procrastination. It might be avoidance. So, right. you know, no, if you're, yeah. yeah, it might be more avoidance than procrastination. Procrastination, I think is, you know, we all, we all do it sometimes for sure. But I think in this context, it's probably more an avoidance thing than anything else. So to me, the way I got over that, which brings it back to how do you slow down in the middle of a panic attack? I literally just got to the point where I was tired of being the way I was. Like I was so angry at all the limitations and the problems that it was causing me and the restrictions. And I felt like I was failing as a, as a father and as a business person and, and, and all of my life that 
it became less painful to go at the challenges than it was to keep sitting back and watching the world go past me and feeling like this is not good. I'm letting everything slip through my fingers here because I don't want to be afraid. So what helped me get out of the procrastination slash avoidance thing was the discomfort of going toward the fear was a better choice than the, the frustration and the discomfort of not going toward it. Like, yeah, so the frustration yeah. of, of, st of being in the midst of an anxiety disorder. Yeah. yeah, I've said like, you know, what's really hard facing your fears? What's also really hard not facing your fears? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it just depends on, on the context, the time frame. like facing your fears in the immediate time frame right now, if you have to go do an exposure, is really hard. But not facing your fears on a long time frame, I think for me became harder because I could see that my life was just deteriorating and deteriorating. I didn't want that anymore. So that's what helped me break that habit, procrastination, if you will want to call it that. Yeah, I know that I can see from the comments that really hit home, Drew. Um, that light bulb moment, you're right. Um, just, yeah, yeah, I, it really hits home with me as well. So well, that's why I love your work so much um, because, yeah, a lot of the things you say, Drew, really, really do hit home. And you just you just say it in a way that, that no one else does. And, and that's what I love about you. Um, the next question, Drew, is how do you tackle a fear of speaking and messing, uh, messing up words uh, and stammering when anxious? Um, so it, do you have any techniques on like trying to bring, bring it 7% slower uh, if someone's like public speaking or they're speaking like in a meeting or, or they're speaking at work with friends in a group situation? Uh, okay. Well, certainly I'm not qualified as a speech pathologist to, to give you advice on, on stuttering, but I think one of the interesting things that I can pass along on this is when I was doing the, and I'm going to put air quotes, research for 7% slower, which is essentially crowdsourcing a lot of information in the community. And mm -hmm. I asked people again and again and again here and on my Facebook group, like, what are your speed? What happens when you start to get anxious and you speed up? What happens? And fumbling for words and, and stumbling over words and stammering and stuttering was the number one thing that people said. They begin to forget words. They lose their track of what they're saying. They lose their train of thought. They can't find a word. They stumble on their words. They repeat things. That was the number one thing. The other thing was physical, like I drop things, I keep dropping things, whatever it is. So the, the speech thing was the number one thing. For me, I remember being at a doctor appointment once when I was in the midst of my antidepressant withdrawal. And my doctor, it was interesting because at the time he's listening to me and he was good with that. So, you know, he was really good at listening to me. And at one point he said, I'm nervous about you because I, I think you might possibly be bipolar. And I'm like, I don't want to talk about bipolar diagnosis, but I said, why do you think that? He said, because your speech is incredibly pressured and fast. Mm -hmm. And that stuck with me. And I'm like, no, I'm not bipolar. But when I would get anxious and upset, I would speak. And people say I speak fast as it is. I would speak even faster than that. It would begin to feel like pressured speech, like I couldn't get it out fast enough. Slowing down actually helped that. I can't say that slowing down consciously, slowing down my words, I didn't have to speak. I keep, I keep reminding myself, I do not have to get all the words out at one time. They come out one after another. That's how we speak. I literally had to remind myself of that and slow down. And like my words came out better. When I was anxious and afraid, I still, you know, would stumble over some words now and then, but I didn't make it worse by trying to get all the words out at one time. So I don't have any specific advice for that other than, I, I, my opinion would be that if you can just take a step back and say, 
I can speak more slowly. I am not required to speak very quickly and I'm not required to speak in any particular way. As long as the words come out of my mouth and they are intelligible to the audience, then I'm good to go. Even if they're a little bit slower, totally fine. So try it. What's the worst that can happen? Yeah, well, that really um, it reminds me of a situation that um, whereas there was a few people that I knew and they were really confident. So um, like the the most talkative person in the group, uh, and they, honestly, they would use confidence and what and you they would always be chatting. And I remember having a conversation with one of them, and they opened up to me saying. Well, the reason that I'm so chatty and the reason why why I talk so quick is because I'm so anxious and I just want to get it all out there. And that really stuck with me because I'd, I'd never seen that before. But it's really common because I, I have heard that um, along the way um, of this anxiety community journey of how common it is that the people around you who may seem confident, who may who may be talkative, who may be the loud alpha males, may also be dealing with anxiety as well. It's not a one size fits all. Yeah, always a public speaker, never had a fear of public, always the speaker, always this project leader, always the boss, always the guy that owned the company. You know, just that guy, for whatever reason, that's just been my personality, yet here I was. And that was difficult. And I think part of that aspect of my personality was I was always a very fluid speaker. So if there was a speech to be given or a presentation, everybody would just, you do it. And I was fine with that. Okay, I'll do it. Because it didn't bother me at all. But do you th I, Drew, do you think that um, that person, so your personality type like that, because on the outside, it appears to be like you say, all or this, this alpha male who, who's the leader, do you think that it's easier for that personality type to be dismissed by others around them uh, when dealing with anxiety? I, I think people take it at a very surface level and they assume that that person who is always maybe in a leadership role or whatever it may be, or, or just maybe is a little bit more on the forefront or feels more confident, um, always, always love to be chatty in groups and very social and that sort of stuff. I think they would just assume maybe, oh, that person should would never be afraid of things. Why would they be afraid of anything? Mm -hmm. So I think it would possibly it becomes a little bit of a uh, like, no, how would that person possibly have this problem? And I know that many people who knew me before and know me now would think like there is no way that you were that you, there's no way you were stuck in your bedroom or frozen in your bathroom that how could that possibly be but it can happen to anybody it doesn't it doesn't matter it can happen to anybody it doesn't matter what your personality is in fact yeah. i've heard some people posit that maybe you know if you want to call us whatever type a overachiever whatever that sort of stuff maybe we're more prone to it i've heard that theory i don't know if i have an opinion on it yeah that, who knows um, but, yeah uh why so the next question why seven percent slower which i know you touched on earlier and why the green lizard so that seven percent was just it's just an absurd thing and i'm a fan of the absurd it's ridiculous seven percent slower it sounded good i was like yeah but at the time i wasn't going for alliteration which is weird like back in 2008 i wasn't ever thinking that like you know years later 13 years later i'd write a book about it in a million years if you said like i'll give you a million dollars if you write a book about this i would have been like no i what do you mean a book about this i'm just trying to get out of the effing supermarket right now like forget writing a book so i wasn't planning on some sort of clever alliteration it was just something absurd which is where my brain gravitates i like absurd humor and the lizard is just the lizard brain i like i continually refer to it to, as the lizard brain and as i was writing i was like I, i've written lizard it was my editor she's like 
if I see the word lizard one more time, I'm going to hurl. And, and I'm like, <laughs> it's staying because that's just what I like to say. So it seemed like it needed a lizard to represent, you know, what we're talking yeah. about. And it, yeah, it's a great, it's a cute lizard. So uh, well, well done with that, Dre. Um, so someone said, how do you just sit still with your anxiety? I find it hard uh, on, the uh, on the commuter train uh, into uh, work. Uh, where I know that I can't really get up and walk around. Uh, do you have any advice in just being able to sit in like an uncomfortable situation? Sure. Uh, uh, for me, this is, these are good questions, by the way. These are really good questions. No. I, I, this is going to sound like I'm counteracting or, or contradicting myself. Because I always talk about like, we talk, in my Facebook group, we talk about ragdoll and we talk about surrendering and just letting, you know, going limp, which is true. But for me, on a, in my mind, that's a very active process. Like it sounds like a very passive process, but to me, when I feel that start to rise and I know that there's anxiety rising and it's heading toward panic, the act of like going into neutral and relaxing into it and letting it come at me feels very defiant and it feels very empowering. And it, that's an active process. I actively make the choice to change my body language, change the way I'm sitting and not fidget around. So I almost look at it as a bit of a challenge. Like, okay, come and get me then. Like mm -hmm. you've tried thousands of times, come and get me, like come and get me again, go ahead. And I know that, you know, a lot of people look at it that way, ask for more, I don't ask for more, but to me, I know that it's a very limp, like you wouldn't know the difference. I'm just sitting there like anybody sitting on the train, for instance. So it's not like it looks any spe anything special. No, no, definitely, yeah. Right, but most people look at it as like, oh, it's a ragdoll. It's very limp. It's like a passive, almost uh, surrendering. But to me, I feel like I've got my jaw straight out, my chest out. Like, go ahead, try it. Go ahead, hit me one more time. Go ahead. Like, I dare you. I dare you to knock me down because you can't. So how do I do it? I do it that way. I feel like I'm being very defiant, and it's a very empowering feeling. So I know that I'm relaxed, but my mindset is really very forward. It's very aggressive and in the face of the anxiety, and I'm doing that by relaxing. That probably makes no sense because it's, it's very contradictory. No, it really, I think it really does make sense because there is nothing stronger than going toe-to-toe -to -toe with fear. So we know that people who are going through anxiety are strong, badass people. Um, so being able to do that and, like you say, knowing that it – all them times before, thousands of times, it hasn't, it hasn't, it hasn't done anything to you. So no. it's not gonna, it's not even, even though you, <laughs> the body's um, giving you this feeling that this time it's different, it never is. And that, yeah. that's what we all reiterate. That's what we all try and bang the drum off. Um, yeah, and I, I really resonates with me anyway, Drew. And um, the next question: How can I do things seven percent slower when my family demands that I perform? at the highest level <laughs> uh okay uh, that's it look i i'm going to tell you flat out like i learned to go very slow and that was a thing that i learned and that skill stays with me and you know dean and i are, are friends we communicate quite often and i think you would attest to this you know i don't know anybody that performs at a higher level than me i'm just going to say that like in terms of being productive i have a lot of projects all the time everything gets done right i enjoy what i do i i love all the stuff that i do and my plate is always full in a lot of different arenas. And I can perform at a very high level without being frantic in my performance. So please don't confuse frantic performance with high performance. Like look at the greatest athletes in the world. 
they look effortless. You know, so Michael Jordan looked like he didn't have a care in the world while he was absolutely dominating the NBA. Wow. If you look at that, he looks completely effortless. And I think in a way, that's what we can all aspire to. So you can perform at a high level without performing frantically with a very high nervous energy level. In fact, yeah. I, I'm much more productive when I am, believe it or not, going slower. Uh, I did an interview not too long ago where we talked about that. Like, it doesn't mean that you do less in a day. It means that what you do, you do more productively. So really and truly, 7% slower, if you were to quantify that, there's 86,400 seconds in a day. 7% of that is not a lot of seconds. So if you actually did the math and could go, isn't it wrong that I know that there are 86,400 seconds in a day? That's not, that's <laughs> I, not right. I, I, just, I just, yeah, I just see it there. Yeah, email thought. <laughs> Uh, that comes from an old tech technology thing in my old business. But in the end, it, even if you were to do that math and actually quantify it, you wouldn't lose that many seconds if somebody wants to do the math. So you don't lose productivity. You just get better at what you're doing. You're not literally like moving like a sloth. You feel like you are because it feels very unnatural, but you can still be very productive without being frantic about it. So does it feel abnormal to you when you don't have all these projects? How do you feel when when you, there's not a, not as much on your plate, how do you deal with that? Or are you looking to the next project? No, I'm okay with that. Like uh, I, that I had to learn also. Like, mm. you know, I was always that guy sort of overachieving and I wore that as a badge of honor, which was a huge mistake. Like being super busy and having a lot of things and getting things done. I, I, I sort of hate that whole mindset online, especially in the entrepreneur, like the Gary V's of the world and getting shit done. And like Gary V was the king of like, you know, sleep four hours a night and just don't go to your kids' events and like hustle. And, and that's the price you pay. That's ridiculous. That's, that's, you don't, nobody has to live that way. So I actually can enjoy when I have some downtime and I'll, I'll plan that. I'll let projects slide or I'll wait between projects sometimes. Just if I feel like it, I'll do that. But if I feel like it, I'll also load myself up with a lot of things to do. I like both ways. I can deal with both. Oh, that's brilliant. Uh, that, that would, yeah, that. Let me just have a look at the, uh, so what do you do when you're completely paralyzed by anxiety? Now that is a new symptom. I don't think I've heard of anyone being completely paralyzed. Um, so I'm guessing they're using that as a metaphor of, of that uncomfortable feeling, yeah? I mean, I know people, this is not a thing I have personal experience with. It, it was not, it was not a thing that I ever lived, but there are people that will say that they have a literal freeze response, that they are locked in place. They cannot move. I am not going to invalidate that. That may in fact be happening. And that would be a very extreme response. I would think where you are literally locked in place and literally physically unable to move, but everybody I've ever encountered that will claim that they are paralyzed usually will qual qualify that paralysis. Like I'm, I'm paralyzed, but I can get home, mm -hmm. you know? So I, you know, I can get up and leave the movie theater. Well, I thought, I thought you were paralyzed. So I'm not trying to invalidate anybody's freeze response in any way, shape or form. I understand it's a very difficult position to be in, but I always urge people to at least bring a measure of objectivity into it if you can. It's really hard to say I'm paralyzed if you are able to engage in popping mints, calling your girlfriend, snapping rubber bands, popping a pill, or leaving the movie theater, that's clearly not paralyzed. That's just afraid and acting towards safety. So that's my best response to that. There's, there's usually always when you inject a measure of objectivity into that, usually the reality of it comes out like, oh, right. I had somebody today who insisted when I panic, I, I have no ability to access thoughts. I can't think. Hmm. 
I just find myself driving my way all the way home. But what you're telling me, you have no, you're in some sort of daze, you cannot access thoughts, but you're, you can think as long as you're heading toward your home. And it was like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess that's right. So be careful about declaring yourself paralyzed. That may be dropping all of your power on the floor for no reason. No, yeah, that's, that's really good advice. Um, how do you start to take things slower when you have too much, so literally what you're just speaking about then, when you have too much on your plate, so this person's got loads of projects, so what would your advice yeah. from your heart be uh, when you know that you, you go, you do, you've got so many projects at hand and you know you've maybe got deadlines or you've got other people's expectations? Right. Um, yeah, what would your advice be for that? So here, and, and I live that, right? I, sometimes I do live that. And look, I'm, I'm certainly not perfect. I, I'm not perfect at any of this. So there are times when I put that much of a workload on me when I do all of a sudden catch the fact that I'm working frantically. But here, this is the analogy I like to use. If you're out driving your car, so I'm gonna use an American driving thing where we drive on the correct side of the road as opposed to- No, the they're definitely the wrong side. <laughs> so I can't wait till you get, well, we'll talk about that No, later. yeah. But um, I'm not gonna let you drive, drive around here. So when you're out in your car and you're sitting at a stoplight or, or a stop sign and you wanna make a right turn and there's a car coming, so you have to wait for that everybody's done this. You jump in front of the guy because you just decide, I don't want to wait that long. But there was nobody behind him. If you just waited three more seconds, mm -hmm. that car would pass. You lost three seconds of your 86,000. It is a negligible, <laughs> you can't even count the impact of those three seconds. That's, that's the analogy that I would use here. Everybody seems to think, like the old Seinfeld, George Costanza, if, you're, if you look busy and annoyed, it means you're productive. That's not true. Like you're probably less productive when you are trying and working frantically at everything. So again, my answer to that would be, do not confuse frantic energy with productivity. They're not, the two are not the same and you are not required to be frantic in order to be productive. I'm living proof of that. I can be very calm and measured and I can jump from task to task to task, like intentionally, but none of it is frantic. And yet I manage to accomplish a lot every day. You're better when you're slower, to tell you the truth, because the time you lose by slowing down is so minuscule, the actual time, each time you slow down at a given task, and it doesn't add up. You're not wasting hours a day by slowing down. You're probably wasting accumulative seconds per day. Yeah, I remember when I was speaking, um, like when I, during the panic uh, disorder, when I was speaking to the therapist, and they, they, they were saying to me, I bet uh, in the mornings um, you don't take any time out for yourself and that you're, you're, you're rushing around probably going to be late for work. And they were, they were spot on because it's a trend with anxious people that mm -hmm. you don't take that time out to, to have time for yourself to, to get things um, in order for the rest of your day. And what she said really hit. She said that because you start your day off like that, you're gonna have this chaos and anxiety during the day, uh, and yeah. giving you giving your day some structure, giving yourself a few hours to get up, have a coffee, do what you want to do before then, um, like tackling the day ahead, uh, really helps. One of the things that I, I wrote about in the anxious truth is a thing I call the morning effect. Like when you're in the recovery phase really changing and making that morning routine matters. Like if you could start your day actually living your day a little bit on your terms, as opposed to being just dragged around either by the demands of life or by anxiety, 
things do get better. It's not, none, none of these things individually is some sort of magic cure or shield, but cumulative, cumulatively, they do make a difference. So for me, I try not every morning. This morning was an exception for sure. But when I'm up early and, you know, you're five hours ahead of me and we're messaging and it's my 5 a.m. or 4.30 in the morning, I am doing my, you know, I'm working out and I'm meditating and maybe I'm reading a little and I make sure I have a cup of coffee or tea or something. I really try to like start the day on my terms before I bury myself in my phone and my computer and my, my business and all that sort of stuff. It makes a big difference. It really does. Definitely. Yeah. Do, you, do you do that? Do you have like a wind down process at the end of the day? My wind down process probably needs work. Uh, right. Sometimes it's literally just zoning out in front of like ridiculous like YouTube videos of music theory and stuff that I like. Sometimes it's literally just like two o'clock in the morning face planting and I'm out. So I don't have a good wind down process for sure. I have a pretty decent morning process though, which is astounding to me because I never in a million years thought I'd be a, a morning person like that. But here I am. Yeah, and I, I love that, Drew, um, that, that side of you is showing people that you've come through an anxiety disorder, but you're not, the, the, it, there's always work to be done. You're not at 100%. And I, I, I love that um, honesty, vulnerability that you show to people because we know that there's so many people out there who try and maybe sell an anxiety cure. Uh, and we, we often tell our communities to stay away and do research, et cetera. So, yeah, just really proud and happy. And, well, it just shows strength, doesn't it, to show that vulnerable side to yourself. I guess, well, I appreciate those are very kind comments, my friend. I appreciate that. I, I, guess, I guess I don't see it so much as strength. It's just reality. We can, we can choose to ignore reality or we can live in it. Like the reality is that sometimes I'm stressed. Sometimes I get anxious. Sometimes I make mistakes. Sometimes I fall into bad habits. Like that's reality. That's not a weakness. It's just the way the world works. I don't know anybody that's walking around perfect, like just executing everything perfect all the time. That's just not reality. So I appreciate that you see strength in it. I just see an acknowledgement of re of what is. That's all it is. And I'm not ashamed yeah. of what is. Yeah. And I think there's so many people um, who, when they're going through an anxiety disorder, um, they it's almost like a false expectation of what anxiety recovery will look like. Uh, mm -hmm. They're expecting to never feel anxious again. And then when they do feel anxious, they're seeing that as a setback. And I, I know we we try really hard to to tell the community that no, that doesn't mean that you're, you're relapsing, that doesn't mean that you're not recovering on the right path. The goal is not to eradicate anxiety. In fact, the science behind it is that people with lower um, anxiety levels are more likely to do riskier things, so more likely to, to end up in accidents, for example. So having a, a small level of anxiety when you need it is really important. Yeah, definitely. And I think sometimes, especially when you're in the thick of it, I know for me, I used to think, I just want the old me back. I used mm. to pine for the old me, like previously not. I think we talked about this last time in the recovery room came up. And and I would think that like, oh, I, I wish I could remember when I was not anxious. I want to be that guy again. But I think back in those days, and I probably was anxious. I just didn't understand what I was feeling. So I, I did have anxious moments. I just didn't know it. Or I didn't handle it very well. I buried everything. I just you know, put the a lid on everything. So in the end, to me, and that's the, you know, you talked about the series of books, the four, the book that will, it'll be next year sometime. I don't have, I have time to write a book right now, but it's called Lessons from the Panic Zone. And those things that I learned in my recovery really helped make me who I am today. So like all of this, these things that I'm able to accomplish today, 
if I did not live the experience that I lived, I would not be able to do what I do now. So as crazy as it sounds, it was a lot of years of my life that I had to deal with this nonsense. But I guess I'm thankful for it to a certain extent because I learned lessons that stay with me every day and will stay with me. And I continue to learn them and, and expand on them and hone skills. And, and, and I love that. I really do. I love that. And I wish that for everybody. So that will be the fourth book. No, uh, yeah, I can, I can only reiterate that, that going through an anxiety disorder really it builds qualities of you that you didn't know existed within you. And um, I wouldn't want to be that person before the anxiety disorder. Like you say, you were new, improved people. And that, re that really uh, hits home, Drew. The last question from the followers, and it's a really good, important question. What three, well, first of all, they're saying, do you have a copy of the book so they can see it? I don't know if you've got one there. Uh, I do not have, I don't have my, I, my iPad in front of me or else I would show it to you. Oh, wait, here, ready? I can show you what the cover looks like by doing, ready? Can you see it on my screen? Yes. Yes, yeah, it looks like that. Yeah. Just look at it. You know, my Instagram story is full of it. <laughs> All my posts are full of the cover. Um, I don't have the print version yet. I'll have that next week. So. Fantastic. And um, they followed up with what three techniques from the book uh, would you say are the most important for someone who's wanting to read it? To me, the well, I mean, I really went through great lengths, I believe, in chapter nine to, you know, it's like, why should you go 7% slower? What are the benefits? Why might you not want to do this? What's the reasoning behind it? And then how do you do it? So to me, the three takeaways is you have to learn to acknowledge your speeding habits. Like, it's funny, I, I have some stuff in my IG story today. Where I talked about mindful showering and toothbrushing and hair brushing and easy things that you can use to learn to go slower to practice. And I'm amazed at the number of people when you bring that up that say, oh, my God, I didn't even realize I was doing that. Like, yes, I rushed to the shower like I'm being chased by an angry mob and they don't even realize they're doing it. So number one would be starting to acknowledge and understand what, what your speed red flags are. Like, what is it that will tell you, like, I'm doing it again? Number two, practicing the skills that you need to practice. Just with that just acknowledging, Drew, would that yeah. be, no, would you be writing that down? What would your advice be to? Yeah, I, I, in the book, I actually give homework. So one of the, oh. I have acknowledgement homework, which is, I say to use index cards because I guess I'm really old, I don't know, but you could, you could make notes. Like every time you realize what your rushing habits are, like, yeah, write it down somewhere and then spend a couple of minutes every day just flipping through them so you remember like, oh, I have a tendency to drop things. I have a tendency to, to shorten my stride, which means I'm moving faster. I have a tendency to speak really fast. So when people actually do that homework, they start to really understand like, oh yeah, I do this, 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 and this, and it becomes easier for them to realize it when they're doing it. So that's how I did it. I literally made a list, told my therapist, I do these things. And she's like, good, keep reading the list. She was right. <laughs> and what would number two be? Number two would be practicing the skills that you need to implement going 7% slower, which is learning to relax your body, learning to go to your breath, learning to literally practice slowing down. So as crazy as it sounds, what I write about is you have to practice going comically slow. Like what you think is comically slow. Somebody wouldn't think that it is to you it's going to feel really weird so if i go and pick up my trusty snoopy bug right now and i go really slow with it and take a drink really slow and put it back down you might not notice that it's terribly slow but to me that feels really unnatural but i say practice going 11 percent slower so that when the chips are down you'll go seven percent slower if that makes any sense no that yeah that makes great sense yeah uh, and the, number three is is 
starting is giving yourself a chance to recognize the impact that it's having. So I think a lot of people will automatically say, well, I tried that, but I was panicking anyway, and it doesn't work. Like, no, no, you got to give yourself a little space to see those incremental changes over time. So if you're not willing to let it happen over time and let those changes be incremental and organic, then you're going to be disappointed. Because if you think that this is a way to instantly squash your anxiety and panic, you're going to be disappointed. I say it right in the beginning of the book. That's not what this is. It's just a way to help bring those levels down over time. Because so, obviously, because everyone who's going through an anxiety disorder always wants that to be at the finish line, like you just said, Drew. Do you give the people, do you give them a time scale or do you just say, no, it's going to be different for each person? I think a lot of it depends on, I, I could never give anybody a time frame. And I think, you know, this question comes up all the time. How long does it take to get better? Well, as long as it takes. And there's so many factors that go into that. For me, I know that my recovery went faster sometimes and slower other times. And it depended on how much was pressing on me, how much did I have to do, what was going on in my life at the moment. So from day to day, you have a different life from day to day, right? Some days you might be busier than others. Those might be days where you progress a little more. Other days you might have nothing going on and you wind up just sitting and, and thinking all day, which is not productive. Mm -hmm. So it depends. You just have to keep at it and just work consistently. Be tenacious at this stuff, whether it's practicing the slowing down stuff or all the recovery stuff that I talk about and wrote about in other books. You just have to be really tenacious and understand that it will happen when it happens. And the amazing thing is, I think you can relate to this, Dean, like you don't even know when it happens. You just realize suddenly like, oh, wait a minute. I just went the whole morning without thinking about how I feel. That's a great day. You just don't know when that day is going to happen. And yeah, just, yeah, go in, go in, go in a moment or a day without worrying that anxiety is going to, going to appear. It's like we had, isn't it? Because I remember in the midst of a panic disorder, I don't know if it was the same for you, but I'd wake up in the morning and I'd strategically put out how long it was going to take me to get to the end of the day, to get to, my safe place at home so if I was going to work how many hours did I have before I could have a break and yes. yeah just, yeah it, it was a really really interesting way of living uh, and it didn't work so yeah it was a tough way to live I, I would do exactly the same thing it was like oh like how am I going to get to eight o'clock tonight when the demands are over and I could like hide again yeah. I would think that all the time and for me, I started to notice a change where I would begin to feel better in the afternoons. And so I had a little, that's how it worked for me. Like my anxiety would begin to decrease in the afternoons. That was the first hint for me that things were getting better. And so I was able to say like, okay, I feel horrible right now at six o'clock in the morning, but I kind of know that by two, I'm going to start to feel better. I could do this. And, and then that interval got smaller and smaller and smaller over time. So yeah, those were, those were crazy days, but sometimes they were good days also. Yeah, no, that, exactly and that, that that's really important knowing that a lot of people when they're going through an anxiety disorder you still do have your good days in there and you mm -hmm. will recover and we will live in proof to say that and that's why we write these books that we never thought we would write drew like you say if someone asked us years. years ago we were going to write a book we would yeah we'd think that, that yeah they were speaking to the wrong person but no uh fourth book next year and, and i can't wait for that so where can people get 7% slower? Uh, people are asking, what's the name of your podcast? What's the name of the other books? And <laughs> yeah, plug everything, Drew. Now I'll plug time. everything. Now That's what we're here to do. Let's see. <laughs> oh, no. Now I'm going to panic because I'm not good at the plugging thing. The, the podcast, everything you can find at theanxioustruth.com. Everything is there. 
you can find 7percentslower.com will get you to 7% slower, but that's just a page on the anxious truth. So yeah. if you go to the anxious truth.com, you will see links to my podcast, which is called the anxious truth. Um, you'll see all three of my books and anxiety story. Uh, the anxious truth is the recovery guide and 7% slower is the new one now. So they're all there. The books, uh, the links to the podcast, every episode is there links to YouTube, Spotify, Apple, all the places to listen. So if you just go to theanxioustruth.com, you'll get everything you need. It's all there. And just before we go, and I know that we love answering questions, I've just popped a question. <laughs> I, I, I saw it, and I, I was going to let it go, but I couldn't. Uh, and it's a really good question. It is. Why do people end up with agoraphobia and some people don't? Okay, that's like the $64,000 question for sure. And if any of us can figure that out, you know, we'll just be instantly tremendously successful. Um, I don't know. I wish I could tell you why that is. There's, you know, there's 7 billion people on the planet right now. The odds are really high that at least 60% of us will have a panic attack at least once in our lives. That's just seems to be the numbers, right? The odds are really high that of that 60%, like another 30 or 40% will have repeat panic attacks. But yet we don't have 2 billion people with panic disorder. So why do some people have multiple panic attacks almost on a regular basis and never develop the avoidant maladaptive response? I wish I knew. And to go back to an earlier question, you would think that somebody who's like a traditional fearless leader, alpha male kind of thing would not avoid, yet there seems to be no rhyme or reason. So why do some people end up with agoraphobia? Those are the people that go into extreme avoidance mode and back up, back up, back up, back up, back up until there's no place left to back up and you're down to three square feet in your life and that's the only safe place you have. I wish I could tell you why some people begin to avoid and some people can truly say oh i i, I felt really bad today but well whatever that was yeah that was today like tomorrow's a different and they go to bed and it's over i i don't know i wish i knew that but hopefully we'll get the answers to that Drake. maybe <laughs> uh, what you said regarding agoraphobia is about that isn't it is about that say you say space becoming just smaller and smaller and smaller until you you trust yes. it in, in that in that zone where you feel that it's safe so I did yeah. a, a podcast episode on that, Agoraphobia Explained. Agoraphobia is panic attack, panic disorder, where you become afraid of the next panic attack. Avoid, 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 avoid agoraphobia. That's, that's the progression. So agoraphobia is not a special kind of anxiety. It's just avoidance run amok, unchecked. That's all it is. Exactly. And a lot of people get the, get the misconception that it just means that you can't leave your house. Well, they, that could be a form of agoraphobia, but it can be – it's just – yeah, it's retreating from from the safe space. So you could be um, one one time you could go to a shopping center, but then you you can't even get in the car to go to the shopping center. Do you know what I mean? That's a right. form of of not being able to to fulfill it. But what you can do because do you know what I mean? We've done it, and and that's that's important. Um, yeah. Drew, I'd like to say thank you so much for spending the last hour with us. Um, guys, the link is in my bio as well. So people asking, just go in the bio, you'll see it's 7% slower. It takes you straight to the Amazon page and you can download it now. Also, Drew's given me a really cool video um, of what the ebook looks like. And it looks amazing, doesn't it? it really, they've done a real good number on it. Um, so have. I'm going to put that on my stories now with a link up as well. And um, is there anything you want to say about the paperback? Because I can see that people are asking when it's going to be. Um, and is there, any going to, is there going to be any Brucey bonuses regarding anything? 
There, well, yeah, you and I are cooking up a thing. So yes, there will be the paperback right now, the paper, I'm just waiting for the cover, my cover designer. So to produce a paperback, here's a little inside information, BTS behind the scenes to produce a paperback book, the cover designer has to know how many pages it is. So we knew exactly the number of print pages when the formatter finished late last week. So now I have to go to the cover designer and say it's 131 printed pages so that she can make the spine of the book, the correct size for, for the printers. And uh, she will probably finish that in the next day or two. We'll upload it to KDP and to Ingram Spark probably Friday. And Amazon should pick it up within 72 hours. The ebook they picked up in four hours. Yeah, so the no. paperback could be out as soon as Friday, but latest, I would say Monday. Uh, and it will be on Book Depository and all those other places as soon as Ingram does their thing. But they're slow. So unfortunately, they're slow. And yeah, we do have, I think, we're going to go live again uh down the road and yes if you watch that live there will definitely be an extra ad being able to get on a zoom call with me in a very small group and and just chat and answer questions and stuff one-on-one -on -one or in a small group of maybe 10 or 15 people for 45 minutes so we're gonna work that out so yeah that's the deal no, that audiobook probably the week after next i i have i will be recording the audiobook over the next seven days or so so that'll come out probably in the next week also well that gives us some in, that gives us some in, inspiration for untangle your anxiety one yes. day we'll, we will get an audio book out there we promise but drew thank you so much Very really lovely. appreciate uh, the time you've taken out thanks for this wonderful uh, project that i know so many people are going to really resonate with and i know it's going to help so many people and i know that's why you do it and uh, so yeah just thank you for for everything you do in the community and uh yeah i'll see you again very soon dre very good thanks for the platform and guys thanks for coming by and for your support i appreciate all of it all right take it easy dre later you've been listening to dlc live be sure to follow dean on instagram at dlc anxiety check our website at dlcanxiety.com and grab yourself a copy of our latest book, Untangle Your Anxiety, on Amazon today. See you next time.